Good to see you here at the five o'clock service. Just to um, say a few things, it's not too late uh, if you wish to um, sign up for our latest evening classes. On Wednesday evening, Colin has begun a brand new course on healing, healing, Christ the healer. It goes along with his new book, which is being launched with this course, and then the church launch will be after that. And so we're encouraging as many people as possible that believe they have a healing ministry. Well, we've all got a healing ministry, but want to know more about not only what the Bible teaches about healing, but how to move in a healing anointing, what to do when people don't get healed, and how to pastorally help people that are believing God for healing. And so uh, that's on Wednesday evening. Then on Thursday evening, we're walking through the New Testament, and it's a New Testament survey which means that you will understand the New Testament as a whole, as well as its parts, with strong familiarity with the different books and letters and when they were written and why they were written. And by the end of that course, you really will have a strong familiarity with the New Testament literature upon which our faith, of course, is based. Also, next week, we have a guest speaker that will be with us at the 9 o'clock Um, 11 o'clock and 7 o'clock service. His name is John Glass and he is the general superintendent of the Elim Pentecostal movement of which we're part. Uh, A great long-standing colleague of our senior minister Colin. Colin Dye is on the national leadership team of the Elim churches right across the whole of Great Britain and John heads up that national leadership team. Very powerful preaching, very prophetic as well in what he says. So he'll be 9-11 and also ministering at our Holy Spirit service at 7 o'clock. This evening, I've got a uh, special message that I'm bringing. um, And the message that I'll be speaking on this evening is handling your Isaacs. Handling your Isaacs. From the laughter of faith to the laughter of fulfillment. We hear much about Abraham. I preach a lot about Abraham because Paul says that Abraham is the father of all who believe and that we walk in his footsteps. But actually, Abraham's whole life and relationship with God was centered around an individual called Isaac. Abraham got saved because he believed that God was going to send him Isaac and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham grew in his faith as he waited patiently for his Isaac and sometimes not so patiently. He had his Ishmael. And uh, then when Isaac was born... We see this battle between Ishmael and Isaac. And then also when we see the young man Isaac, how he conducted himself. This is really important for us to understand. Because Galatians chapter uh, 4 says that we are sons of God. Just son, Sorry, we are sons of the promise just as Isaac was. So how Isaac was, we are. But also in our lives, God will give us promises. God will show us destinies. God will be speaking by his spirit. And these will be the Isaacs that God wants to birth out of our lives. When Sarah first heard that she was going to give birth uh, within nine months, she laughed. It wasn't the laugh of faith. It was the laugh of, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. She wasn't spiritual at that moment. She wasn't supernatural. She's the one that got Abraham to have Ishmael by a handmaiden. 
But we see at the end of the story for Sarah, at least, that when Isaac was born, she said, now I'm laughing. Isaac means laughter. Now I'm laughing. And it's not the laugh of unbelief, but God has made everybody joyful with us. When uh, Isaac's come to birth, it's a great joy for us. But do we even know what our Isaacs are in the lives? The things that we think are so precious, the things that we, we are pursuing. Is it Isaac or is it Ishmael? Do we even know the difference between Isaac and Ishmael in our lives? Because they are parables and pictures of the life of faith and promise and spirit, Isaac. And Ishmael is a picture of human effort, unbelief and carnality. So we need to make sure we know what our Isaacs are and that they're not our Ishmaels. But also we need to make sure that we understand how to handle our Isaacs and how to be our Isaacs ourselves. It's a very important message that I believe I'm bringing tonight. And we're going to be imparting um, the anointing of that as well this this evening. But where we are now in the book of James is at a very strategic place We are in James chapter 2 and verse 14. James chapter 2 and verse 14. Now I say a strategic place in the book of James because the majority of Christians and the majority of Christian pastors haven't a clue what James chapter 2 verse 14 means. Some of them don't know what it means. Some of them have got totally the wrong end of the stick. When it comes to James chapter 2, 14, and the rest of James chapter 2. They really don't know how to handle this. And they're in good company because the great reformer, I think hopefully you've heard of Martin Luther, um, the German monk who rediscovered the Bible teaching that the just are saved by faith alone. That the only thing that we need to do to get into heaven is to simply believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And that faith, if it's in our hearts, saves us. Going to heaven is not about what we can do. It's what what God has already done in sending his son. So the work that gets us into heaven was the work that Jesus did on the cross when he carried our sins so that we wouldn't have to carry them. And if we believe, then salvation comes to us as a gift. You can't earn a gift. You don't have to pay off a gift. It's not like getting something from, you know, a catalog and you're paying installments. A gift is free. Salvation is free. And it's received by believing and nothing more than believing. By By grace you are saved, Ephesians says, through faith, and that not of yourself, even your faith to believe is a gift of God. And Martin Luther discovered, rediscovered this biblical truth, and it revolutionized the world. So imagine when he came to James chapter 2, verse 14, and read this. And I'm going to read right through to the end of the chapter. Imagine Luther when he read, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? The brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. And one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. 
but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab, Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the, the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, when... Luther read that, he found that great difficulty because he had just read or, or been preaching Romans chapter 4 verse 1 that says this, what then shall we say that Abraham our father was found according to the flesh for if Abraham was justified by works, he's got something to boast about but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him to righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are, counted, are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, who are law, those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and, blessed are the, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So to Martin Luther, he thought, wait a second, there seems to be uh, two different views here. We have Paul saying that in order to be saved, you're justified by faith alone, not by works. You can't boast before God and that, and that it's a free gift. And then, as we just read in James, we see James saying things that Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered Isaac on his son on the altar. And so Luther found James very difficult. He called it a right strawy letter. He said it was full of straw, not much to build on. In fact, he even wondered whether it should be in the Bible. That's how much he... There was a story that one day he was studying the book of James uh, and, Scots, and it, was on, uh, it was on a parchment printed. He was studying the book of James and he just couldn't understand. He got so annoyed with it, he chucked it out of the window onto the street in frustration. And this was a great man of God. And throughout the ages, the church and many leaders have failed to understand the book of James. People have thought that Paul believed one thing, justification by faith alone, and James believed something else, that faith without works 
was dead and that if you couldn't prove your salvation by a changed life or by the things that you did, you weren't saved. That James was saying, you say you're saved, show me and show yourself. And if you show me by your works that you're saved, then you're saved. If not, forget it. Some people even believe that James was writing after Paul wrote Galatians and Romans and was criticizing Paul. And so many people will look at this passage and they will say, well, this shows you that it's not just about faith alone. You may be saved by faith, but if you don't have any fruit coming out of, that fa- out of your faith, if we can't see change in your life, then you're not saved, you're not going to heaven, you haven't properly been converted. Well, what is the problem here? Well, the problem here is, is that people of that type of thinking are assuming that James is speaking about how to get to heaven. And that when he's talking about faith, the faith in verse 14, can faith save him, they're assuming that James is teaching how to be justified and how to get to heaven, how to be saved. And this assumption is totally and utterly incorrect. Nowhere in the book of James, anywhere in the book of James, is James teaching us how to get to heaven, how to be saved, how to know that we are saved from our sins and justified to become Christians. Nowhere. Right throughout the book of James, James is already addressing people that are already saved. He's not even addressing the question, of how to become a Christian, he's addressing how to live as a Christian. Not how to be saved, but how to live on earth. And those of you that have been following this series in part or in full, and remember, you can always go on the KT Media section of the website, scroll down to where it says series, press on series. James is there, you press on James, you've got them all lined up for you. So if you ever miss or want to find out some of the other sermons and any of the series of any of the services, then go there and and you can fill in any gaps that you've got. But those that have been regular amongst us will know that James begins talking about, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The theme of James is how to deal with the trials that you will face in this life and tests and also how to help others in their trials and tests. So in other words, James is speaking about the practicalities of living as a believing Christian on the earth and how to deal with things that come your way. So he says, you know, have patience or endurance when trials come because trials are there in order to cause you to mature as a Christian. And we said not just the big trials, but the little trials or the little tests. Every day, Tests come our way, and how we deal with them will either cause us to progress in maturity or perhaps just to stay um, static in our maturity. So little things, little things that happen. If you, re- if, you re- if you react to them in godly ways, you grow, you pass that test. Little things that happen, and you react to them in fleshly, carnal, or human ways, well, then you failed the test. So we're not just talking about huge, big tests. Sometimes they come along. 
But every day has its tests and its small trials for us to grow and develop us. And we've said also that if anybody lacks wisdom, they should ask God for it. The biggest thing that you need is to know how to deal with the tests and trials that come your way each day, how to respond. And God promises us that if we lack wisdom, if we trust him, he will give us the wisdom in various forms. We've looked at that earlier. We've looked at the fact that the poor in James, he looks at the poor and uses them as an example of being rich in faith. Why? Because they've got nothing else or nobody else to trust but the Lord. And he also looks at the rich people and says they need to be very careful because the gospel was designed for the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. The gospel was designed for the poor. You say, well, can't everybody get saved? Yes, but how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's like a camel trying to get into the eye of a needle. The eye of the needle was actually a gate in, uh, in Jerusalem. And in order to pass through that gate, you had to get off your horse to go under it. You, you, a horse and a man on a horse couldn't get through it. This is why we have that phrase when we talk about pride people. Do you know they need to get down off their horse? Why? Because they need to humble themselves. So when Jesus said it's harder for um, a camel to get through the eye of the needle, what he's saying is, is that for a rich person to follow Jesus, there's a lot of humbling work that needs to be done. And the way the, view, the world views the rich and the famous and the great of this world first, and the poor and the nobodies last, James totally inverts that and says God sees it the other way round. And so he speaks about that. He speaks about how to deal with temptations, how not to blame God when you go through something. There's a lot of Christians that aren't in church today because they're out there seething in their backslidden state because they're blaming God. The world blames God. Have you ever spoken to an atheist? One of the first things they say to you is, how can there be a God with such evil and suffering in the world? They're blaming God. We looked at that. Don't blame God when a test or trial comes because he's Lord of the test or trial. He knows the beginning and he knows the end of it as well. He is never changing. He's always like the sun at, at noonday in its full glory. God is always good and he's good all the time. And then James says, look, be slow in verse 19. This is what we're still unpackaging where we are. I need to put all of this in context. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, verse 19 of chapter 1. Swift to hear. In other words, to hear, to learn, slow to anger. Anger never accomplishes anything for God. And uh, be slow to speak, watch your mouth. And then he speaks about doing the word, looking into the mirror of God's word. And in looking at the mirror of God's word, when you see what God is saying and what God is speaking, don't look and go, amen, and walk away. One of the great prophecies over this house, Kensington Temple, was by an elder many, many years ago. I think it was in the 70s. And he had a vision. And he saw people coming through those doors into Kensington Temple. And on the way in, they had on their foreheads the phrases, hearers of the word. But on their way out, they had the phrase, doers of the word. And so when we look into the mirror of God's word, we need to bring change. Last week, we uh, took it to the next stage in chapter 2, where 
James was talking about how we should treat the rich and the poor and how that, that, that exposes what's going on in our hearts. That we look to people that we can get something from and that we are attracted by people where they can give us something emotionally, financially. And James was talking about pure religion is to visit orphans and widows. In other words, pure Christianity is to minister to people or to spend time or give time or energy to people that can't give you anything back. That's the beauty of the gospel. To give to people that can't, that they don't have anything to give you. Now, what benefit is it for us to love people that love us? Or to befriend people that we get a lot from? What about the people? And to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. And then he gives the example of the rich person and the poor person. And there you see in verse 6 of chapter 2, you've dishonored the poor. Do the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they blas- don't they blaspheme and noble the name by which you're called? Now this is important. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then later on, he talks in verse 12. Be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This section is speaking about the fact that we are under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? It's the gospel. The law of liberty is you're not saved by works. The law of Moses showed us that we can't be saved by our works. This is the whole point. Because whoever follows the law of Moses has to follow it perfectly in every way, shape, and form in order to be saved. And the only person that ever followed the law of Moses perfectly was Jesus. And you know, he did that on our behalf as well. Do you know that? Jesus took the test. How many people are doing exams right now? Anybody? Do? We're praying for you. Won't be long. Summer's on its way. Push right through. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. Push right through. Amen. And Jesus took the test of the law. It started the day he was born and ended on the cross. He took the test of the law on our behalf. He passed it and we got the grade. And so we're not under the law of Moses. Jesus, why would you sit a test you've already done before? Those of you doing exams right now, if you, go through, if you get it and you pass it, will you take it for fun next year? No way. Um, my son's doing his GCSEs. He's only got a couple of weeks left. And I'm like having flashbacks. And I'm thinking to myself, no way on earth will I ever do my GCSEs or O-levels again. They were the hardest exams I ever did because half of them I didn't even like, like French. You know, at least in A-levels, you choose the stuff you like. Do you know what I'm saying? And um, so you don't have to do the law again. The law of Moses got nothing to do with the Christian life. Well, then what do we live by? We have a new law, a new commandment, that we love one another as Jesus has loved us, that we carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6, chapter 2, that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And here in verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law of liberty. It's, it's the law of love. We are free We don't have to do anything to get saved. This is the law of freedom. And then, I said all that 
to say that then, after this, we come into verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, one of the big questions is this. Save who? Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Who are we talking about saving and saving from what? Well, R.T. Kendall and Dr. Michael Eaton, uh, two highly, highly world-class theologians, have demonstrated convincingly that the person that faith needs to save in verse 14, yes, is the person in verse 6 of chapter 2, all right? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone he has faith but does not have works, can he save the poor man in verse 6? You've got your Bibles, look at that. Can he save? You've got faith. Can you save that poor man from the situation that he's dealt with? And uh, the, the, the word... Save, save him is in the accusative. It's talking about another person. It's not talking about the person with faith saving himself. It's not a reflective pronoun. It's not, can my faith save me? In the Greek, this is, can my faith save him? Who? The poor man. A few sentences back. And you'll see that this is developed in the next verse, all right? So this is not talking about your faith saving yourself. It's accusative. It's talking about your faith saving somebody else, not you, someone else. So people have misunderstood the clear Greek here in verse 14, thinking it's like, can my faith save me? It doesn't even say that. It says, can my faith save him? Who? The poor man in verse 6. Well, come my faith. And then, then let's look at the next verses. Is, is this true then? Is, could this be true? That James is not speaking about saving yourself, as in getting born again or going to heaven. But is he actually talking about our faith saving other people from the situation that they're in? Yes, of course it is. The whole context. We've already just read, haven't we, about treating the poor properly. We've read about the poor man in the courts. We've read about the royal law, love your neighbor. These passages are speaking about how we treat other people. Verse 9, don't show partiality or favoritism. Talking about other people. Um, Verse 13, showing mercy. Other people. Then verse 14, what does it profit? Profit who? What does it profit? How does it help another person if you have faith but you don't put that into action. The Greek word for works is ergon. And uh, that word can mean work, but it can also mean actions or energies. Ergon, that's where we get the word energy from, ergon. ergon. So don't get hung up on works. We could, we could put actions. So will, will faith alone profit that man in verse 6, that poor man? Just saying, I believe, brother. No, you need to act. You need to help that man. Is that what verse 14 is saying? 
Well, we know it certainly is if we go on to read verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? So there in verse 14, what does it profit? Here in verse 16, what does it profit? Profit who? Profit the person in need. This isn't talking about how to get to heaven. This isn't talking about, about believing the gospel and having to do works to make sure that, that you're acceptable before God. This has got nothing to do with being acceptable before God to go to heaven. This has got everything to do with loving your neighbor. So, verse 17, so... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So in other words, it's of no use at all to that person. It's obvious, isn't it? If you come and, and you're, you, you've got very terrible clothing, not, not decent enough clothing, and you come to a believer, and the believer says, in the name of Jesus, I see it right now, be blessed with Armani. Christian Dior in the name of Jesus Christ. All right, off you go. He's still naked or she's still got poor clothing and it's cold. And what, what, what profit, what benefit has your faith done? It's done absolutely nothing. Loving your neighbor is not just a matter of words. It's a matter of works or actions. You, you show love. Jesus didn't just speak about love. He died on the cross for us. That was his work, and we don't have to do, we, and we have no part in that except to receive it as a gift. And verse 18 says, Well, someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, James is saying this Do you believe in the royal law? Love you, you love your neighbor as yourself? This is what we're believing in. I've got faith, have you? What do you believe? I believe. In the royal law. I believe in it. And what does the royal law say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Clothing, fooding. I believe in that. Do you? Yeah. Well, what do you do about it? Nothing. Oh, so you believe in loving your neighbor. Do you love your neighbor? No. Do you help a person in need? Spiritual need? Physical need? What do you do? I don't do any of it. I just believe. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. I believe in the royal law. I believe in carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Do you carry people's burdens? No. I believe do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you do it? No. Well, then you have faith and I have works. Let me tell you something. I will show you that I believe in the law of liberty, the law of Christ. Love your neighbor as you love yourselves or the law of Christ, Galatians 6, 2 says that carrying somebody else's burdens is the law of Christ. It is the alternative living to the law of Moses, the law of Christ. I'll show you that I believe these things by my actions. Now, right now, many of us might be feeling convicted. I hope that we are. Not, not condemned, but convicted. I hope we're thinking, my goodness, James is really speaking into my life. What am I doing for people that I can't get anything back from? Where are my focuses on, on, on life and things? What about my neighbors? 
Do I say hello to my neighbor? In, do I even say hello to my Do I even know who my neighbor is? And I'm t- not just talking about anybody can be your neighbor. Of course they can. But I'm talking about your neighbor. You live somewhere. Who are your neighbors? Oh, I don't even know. All right. This is speaking to us. You believe there's one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. William Booth founded the Salvation Army. You know, William Booth was an evangelist. He wasn't a social worker. He was an evangelist. But he understood this. He said this. There's no use talking to a man about his soul who has an empty stomach. He understood James. You understand? Now, he understood the most important thing is to have your spiritual needs met. To be, you must be born again. But he also realized that to love your neighbor is not just to get them born again. Hey, he was going out in the streets of London in the East End and he was preaching the gospel, but he was noticing that it was kids hungry, people hungry, poverty stricken, no clothes. So what did he do? Well, he did what James did. He loved his neighbor. He gave him the gospel, but he also set up the Salvation Army that is still doing the same thing today. Out of that also came Dr. Bernardo's, who specifically preached the gospel and clothed and fed and housed many, many orphan children. You see, those things go together, and that's why it was such a powerful move of God in the Victorian era. Um, R.T. Kendall says this in his book on James, um, about chapter 2, 17 to 18, those two verses we've just looked at. R.T. writes... James's message was this. Faith works with God, but not with people. With God, works count for nothing. And faith counts for everything. But with other people, faith counts for nothing. And works counts for everything. Interesting thought, isn't it? He's trying to make sure we've got this separation in our mind that when we come to God, all he's looking for is faith if you hear what I mean, in order to be saved. But other people, they want to see the fruit of our faith in actions. You know, and this isn't just social action here. Do you believe in miracles? Do you you believe in healing? How many people have you prayed for? See, this course on Wednesday is all about fitting people, not only to understand healing, but to minister in it. If you say that you, you believe in healing... I mean, I remember once, sometimes you, you just start awake in your own situation. About a couple of weeks ago, my son had a migraine. And I was doing this, that, and the other. And he was just resting and everything. I didn't pray for him until the afternoon. And then I went and prayed for him. Shouldn't have that been the first thing that I did? Well, he went to the doctors. He's all right and everything. But then afterwards, when he got back, I thought, you know, I think I'll pray for him. Well, I thought, do you believe in healing? Yeah, you're meant to be Pentecostal minister. And yet you delay in laying hands on someone. You know what I'm saying? You believe in miracles? When was the last time you believe in prayer? When was the last time you actually prayed? So this isn't just talking about meeting people's physical needs. It is talking about that. It's talking about the whole life of faith. Also, it's talking about trials and tests. Because the person with no clothes is going through a difficult time. The person with no food is going through a difficult time. 
And so we need to put our faith to work to help them. We could be, you could be the answer to someone's test or trial. Haven't you gone through difficulties and you're thinking, how am I going to get through this or what's going to happen? And God uses somebody else to bring you out of the trial. Sometimes they know it, sometimes they're unaware of what's going on. Well, God doesn't just want us to have faith to put it into work to get through our tests and trials every day. God wants us to be mighty deliverers, to be those that in faithful obedience do things and say things and act in order to help people loving your neighbor. Now, he uses this phrase three times, James, about faith without works being dead. He uses it in verse 17. Verse also, faith itself if it does not have works, is dead. Then verse 20, then, well, if we go also to verse 26, the last verse in the chapter, verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So there again, faith without works is dead. And in verse 20, he uses the phrase, but slightly differently, although it's translated the same in my version. Verse 20 of chapter 2, but do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead. Anybody got dead there? Anybody got the word useless? Yeah, you've got it. What version? New American? New Living Translation. The word is not dead. The word is useless. In the other two verses, the word indeed is dead. But in this verse, verse 20, the word is not dead. It's useless. So why have they translated it dead? It's a mistake. It's a mistake. And this is important because people say, ah, you see, if your faith isn't active and showing works, then you're an unbeliever, you're not even saved, you don't even have faith. But it doesn't say that. It says that faith without works is dead in the sense that it's useless. A dead person's of no use on earth anymore, correct? And faith that's not put into actions is no use anymore on earth It's useless. And so when we talk about trials and tests and loving one another, we've got to put legs on our faith. We've got to put our faith to work. And often the wisdom of God is showing us what to do to get out of our trials or what not to do, what to say or what not to say. But also in helping other people, God will give us wisdom as we're believing God for souls. As we're believing God for people in our cell groups who are going through a difficult time, we're not just there to bless them, we're we're there to seek God for the spiritual gift of wisdom or to help them in whatever way God shows us through their test and their trial. James knows we're already saved by faith. Great, we're all going to heaven because we believe in Jesus and that he died for us. We've received the gift By faith, we don't have to do anything, we're saved. Well, what do we do now? Sit around and wait to be raptured? We've still got to live on earth, haven't we? We've still got to deal with issues in society. We've still got an unsaved world around us. We've still got our own difficulties and challenges that come up. What are we going to do? This is what James is all about. We're going to put our faith to work. We're going to pray. We're going to believe. We're going to witness. We're going to act. And we're going to act in faith. 
Not, not just doing whatever. We're going to do it in faith, with wisdom and by the Spirit. We are going to act. This is what James is talking about. And if we are just believers and not disciples, because this is the difference between a believer and a disciple, a believer believes. A disciple acts on what they believe. What they believe. And I think there's a big difference between a believer and a disciple in that way. So you have lots of Christians that perhaps are armchair Christians, you know what I mean? Oh, I believe, well then you're saved. But do you pray? No. Do you, are you being discipled? No. Are you growing in your faith? No. What do you do for the Lord? Are you active in the vision of the church? No. So what are you actually? You're just somebody that has received a free gift, yes? Yes. But you haven't done anything in your life as a result of that free gift? No. Well, then, you've got faith, you're saved, but it's, of absol- it's absolutely useless. I remember a time in my life where I was like that. We can all grow in this, of course. I was like, I believe I didn't do anything. Didn't do anything, didn't act on my faith. When problems came, I didn't deal with it by faith and prayer and wisdom. I, didn't, I just dealt with it the way I'd have dealt with it if I wasn't a Christian. I'd received the gift of salvation by faith, but I continued to live my life in exactly the same type of way that I would live before. And when I faced difficulties and trials, I dealt with them as I would dealt with them before. Let me ask you a question. When you deal with difficulties and obstacles in your life, would, are you really dealing with them in a totally different way than you would before you became a Christian? Are you dealing with them in a totally different way than your nice non-Christian colleagues or your friends? Are you, are you dealing radically different? Later on, one of the most important parts of James, we're going to look at wisdom. Wisdom from above that is spiritual, peaceable. And wisdom from below that is earthly, sensual, manipulative. Many Christians, when they face the situations they face, the obstacles or the things that they desire... They, they put into practice all the things that the world does. That they're not putting their faith to work. Their faith is just lying there dormant. Yes, they're going to heaven. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. Where he speaks about the fact that we are all on the foundation that is Christ Jesus. That's the free gift of salvation. It's the foundation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In other words, if you've ever been to a building site, my best friend when I was a boy in Yorkshire, his dad was a builder. We used to, I mean, we'd never be allowed to do it today. We used to play on the building sites, you know, climb on the walls and go in. And you'd never, you know, never be allowed to do that, would you, today? We didn't even wear helmets. We just played. And we'd go in there and we'd, and we'd play on the building site. That was our playground because he'd take us with us. And we'd be playing around. And at the beginning, they would do the foundation. But then everything else was built on that foundation. And Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the foundation that's laid is a firm foundation. It's salvation by faith alone. If you believe, you're saved. If you believe in your heart, truly believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, you are saved. Full stop. End of story. The foundation is there. But, but that's where then James comes in if you like. Because James said, all right, you're on the foundation, now what? Now what are you going to do? You, you, we, we're going to see, see that foundation. I remember a building site, 
that, you, that the builders were not, had started their work but weren't given permission to continue, you know, planning office and all that stuff. And so there was the foundations and the holes were dug. It was all there, the foundation, but they weren't allowed to build on it. And for years, it just laid there a foundation of no use or habitation to anybody. The foundation was there, but nothing was being built on it. Paul says that in our lives, we're building. He says we're building with precious stones, or we're building with straw. And what determines what we're building in our lives is what we're reading about here. Faith put to work. Dealing with opportunities, tests, trials, obstacles, mountains. Dealing with them. If we deal with them according to the godly way. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. And the other things that we're going to unpackage in James. If we deal with life the way that James is telling us. We will build on that foundation of grace. Something powerful and great. And when we go to be with the Lord or he returns first. We will get a great reward. But somebody that has faith but doesn't put it to work, Paul says he's like a man who does nothing in his life. The foundation still remains. He's still going to heaven. But when he gets to heaven, Jesus says, what did you build for me? How did you put your faith to work? And it says that all his life was like straw and wood. And it was tested by fire. And the whole thing went up in flames, the whole thing. Yet the man himself was still saved by fire. He had nothing to bring the Lord. So James and Paul are not talking against one another here here at all. On the contrary, they have total understanding of the gospel and also how to put their faith to work. And what we will do next week is we're going to come back and do part two on this because after this section that we've looked at, we have two examples. We have the example of Abraham, our father of faith, who Paul uses to show that we are justified by faith alone in Romans chapter 4. And then we have also Rahab, who was in the town of Jericho, and only her and her household survived because of the faith actions that she took. And in this passage, it speaks about justification by works and next week again this is one of the most misunderstood things in Christendom today next week I'm going to show you the difference between justification by faith and justification by works justification by faith alone saves you from your sins and causes you to know that you're going to heaven justification by faith saves you from your sins. Justification by works saves you from the tests and trials. Causes you to have a reputation with God. People begin to see that you're a man or woman of God. That person knows God. That person's a friend of God. How do you know? Look how they deal with their situations. Look how they deal. Justification by works, that is manward. Justification by faith, Godward. You're saved. Justification by works is how I demonstrate to you that my God is real and that I'm a man of God. And justification by works is about being a mature Christian. It's about getting your reward. It's about dealing with your situations. So they're not against each other. 
And what James will, and we'll unpackage this next week, and what James will say is this, all right, you're justified by faith alone. He says that. But it's not enough in life just to be justified by faith alone. You go into heaven, fine. But what are you going to do now? Don't you know that Abraham, he didn't just say, all right, thank you, Lord, I received my Isaac, and he was justified by faith alone. He was. But he also began to live by faith, walk by faith, to the point of maturity where he was prepared to sacrifice his Isaac. He was prepared to do it. And what was that? He was justified by works. Nothing to do with going to heaven. He was already right with God. It demonstrated to everybody what a strong believer he was, that he'd learned the lessons of life, that he could face the trial, that he trusted God, that he was a friend of God. And at that point, he got reward. God swore on an oath, and he got a great reward. So the two things Abraham experienced, justification by faith, and his sins were forgiven him forever. But he also experienced justification by works and demonstrated what a man of God he was. In Paul's uh, picture in 1 Corinthians 3, he got the foundation laid on the moment that he believed God and it was reckoned to him in righteousness in, 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 in Genesis 15. He was saved, justified by faith had the foundation, a secure foundation. He was saved. But also he learnt, although he had, a few, he had a few buildings that fell down, like Ishmael, but over the years he learnt to build and build and build and build and grow and grow. And every trial that he failed, he learnt from. He grew in maturity and he got to that place where when God allowed him to be tested, he passed the test. He was justified by works which gave him the reward and the reputation and the example for us all. That's where we're going next week. I hope you'll be able to join me. God bless you.